This is Coda Radio, episode 494 for November 28th, 2022. Hey, good buddy. Welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and watching three-hour interviews so you don't have to, it's our host, Mr. Domino. Hello, Mike. That's what they call hardcore, baby. Me and Uncle Elon and and, uh, Nat Friedman were hardcore. Yeah, just you three or four, though? That's it. Nobody else. That's it. We fired everybody else. (laughs) Everybody's got them. Yeah, well, speaking of that, as we go on the air... New Twitter emails are leaking, of course. We won't spend too much time on this, but it's just, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this one particularly. It's basically, the message is, all managers are now expected to write a meaningful quote, this is a quote from the email, a meaningful amount of software themselves. Being unable to do so is like a cavalry captain who cannot ride a horse. So basically, if you want to be a manager at Twitter, you got to know how to read and write a little bit of code, and you actually have to be writing a meaningful amount. What is your thoughts on that? Is that a ridiculous standard, or is that a brilliant standard for good management? I mean, I'm assuming manager means manager of the development team, right? Yeah. A development team. I I don't think that's, that's crazy, to be honest with you. I don't know. I... I've, that's how I've always done things. Any like project managers were former devs, more or less. Yeah. I don't think that's the smoking gun, at least not to my ears, the smoking gun folks would like it to be. Well, I'm, you know, of course, it's being called a ridiculous standard and it's impossible and that, you know, it's exclusionary and all that kind of stuff. Wasn't, isn't the point of job requirements to be exclusionary? To be like, <laughs> I want someone who can do this. Right. No, I'm not not like exclusionary based on no, you can't be a woman, right? But exclusionary on like, no, you have to know like I would not hire a lawyer who didn't like to, I don't know, argue or write contracts, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, and I've I've long held the philosophy that uh if you want to be a good sysadmin, if you want to be a good back end architect engineer, it behooves you to spend some time in user support talking to end users, doing tech support. Mm, yeah. You have a better understanding of the user base, and so you can build better systems. And I think you're more likely to have some empathy for the situation. Also, you know, in media production, I kind of feel like I'm better at my job because there was a number of years where I did the editing. And now I've handed it off to Drew, who's a better editor than I could ever be. But, you know, like I still kind of... I know what his job is and I know what I can do on my end from time to time to try to make it easier for him. And I also know like the kind of pitfalls he can hit and that kind of stuff. And I feel like it probably does make me a better manager of an audio editor because I used to edit audio. I don't currently, but I do pick it up from time to time and I do stay somewhat familiar with the tooling and to Drew's credit, he often keeps me up to date on the tooling as well and and kind of fills me in on the newer stuff that he's, discovering so i again kind of see this more favorably like you do than i think most people are and i don't know if it's something wrong with me or if it's just coming at it from maybe more of a manager perspective i'm not sure why but it was interesting that this is coming out it's a big controversy this morning i mean i i could see like the counterpoint where not necessarily but it doesn't seem like a bad thing you know what i mean like if he had come out and said you must be at least i don't know you know, five five to have this job, right? I'd be like, okay, you're a dick. Also, there's plenty of places to work. 
what? Okay, here's the argument. Here's the argument. Well, Elon himself can't read that code and understand it. So what? What gives him the right to run Twitter then? He can't even meet the standard of his own managers. But that's not his job. Like, I, you wouldn't expect the manager of the sales folks at Twitter to know how to write the code. You'd expect them to know how to talk to people, make a connection, right? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Although your your customer support thing, one of the best things I ever did when I wasn't the chief sales monkey was to make the sales guy like you are going to support each other's deals, not your own. So that if somebody oversold, right, it's it's kind of a self-enforcing, uh, you know, because you're on the same team, right? So you don't want to screw each other. But it's also like, oh, maybe I shouldn't promise the moon and the stars just to get the initial commission. Maybe I should actually, you know, have a developable job that's an interesting solution to that very very common problem <laughs> let me tell you oh, yeah. S- sales guys i i used to say they're like uh, 19 year old boys on prom night or 17 year old boys on prom night right they'll promise anything they totally will we've got some really good python stuff to get into but listener mike wrote us a pretty thought-provoking email and i wanted to share it with you because it happens to hit me at home right right in the feeler right now he says i just listened to uh, your episode, last episode where you're comparing the GNOME desktop to Mac OS a bit. And I've been using Linux since 1995 on the server side and desktop on and off since 97. And I'll say this. Mac OS is fine. You know, it's fine. I use a web browser, Vivaldi. I have iTerm with my, all my tools in it like Tmux. And I have VS Code running all day. And then he has uh, Moom for moving windows around via keyboard and stuff like that. He says, but where it actually really shines and why I came back to the Mac when the M1 was released is the integrations with everything, the phone, the watch, the home pods, etc. On top of that, my family uses Find My. We find it very amazing, he writes. He says the integration of messages, photos, and FaceTime, and being able to answer my phone and my laptop and transition the call to FaceTime and managing my family screen time subscriptions from a central location, it's all amazing. This level of integration in the ecosystem just isn't available anywhere else. And now that I'm a dad in my mid-40s, I don't have time to tinker like I used to. With minor exceptions, usually Siri not understanding the intercom command correctly, everything has just worked. On top of that, little things work, like rotating 3D printer files, dialog boxes that aren't actually horrible, Parallels is a fantastic virtualization platform, especially on the M1. He says, where where I do notice is that other than the 10% where the integrations come into play, it's not great. It's nice, but it's not great. Sometimes there's also updates in the command line tools that take 30 minutes of pain, uh, which we will get to. So um, I bought a Pixel 7 for Black Friday. I got a Pixel 7 Pro. And I wiped Android off there and I loaded Graphene OS. And I decided to see how hard is it to break myself out of the Apple ecosystem. I feel like everybody's been obsessed with Google. But you and I have talked about it. I think Apple's going in the wrong direction. I think they're incentivized to cram ads in front of their users and monetize developers more as the economy slows because people aren't going to buy $1,300, $1,400 iPhones anymore. So they're going to have to monetize their existing huge user base more and more. It's a trend we've been documenting. And so I had a thought experiment. And that was, if I gave myself a year, could I get myself and my family off of Apple's ecosystem and tools? And it's hard, man. Like I'll tell you, replacing macOS and ios that's not the hard part it's everything else from the watch to the home pods it's everything yeah it's the surrounding services that integrates and once it gets you it's really got you can we can we pour one out real quick Mm, yeah you you said one of our magic fallen heroes and you didn't you just glossed over it like it was nothing to you and you introduced me to him 
my true audio love of my life. The HomePod. The o- not that little piece of crap. I'm down to my, I have one HomePod in each location, and I'm realizing I should have bought two more. Yeah. Yeah, because the stereo. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's better as a stereo pair. And it's still cheaper than any equivalent audiophile system. Yeah. So the Pixel 7 Pro has been an interesting experiment. I'm trying. I really, you know, I miss a lot of the integrations. A lot of the stuff just makes working a little easier. Like the watch automatically picking up what the Apple TV is playing and giving me playback controls on my watch without me having to do anything. So that way when the kids lose the remote or I lose the remote or I whatever, I can just tap my watch and pause the TV. That's so nice. And I never had to configure anything. I never had to set anything up. I just put everything on the same LAN and it just works. Uh, and so now I'm having to roll my own solutions for all this kind of stuff. And everything requires setup and maintenance. It's a totally, totally different animal. And I know you just recently had the fun of upgrading to Ventura. I'm sure that went super smooth. Probably had no problems. It was about as smooth as getting gas station sushi is. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, oh. it was uh, It was not fun. Basically, it did indeed require an Xcode update. Yep. Which then broke all of my stuff. By my stuff, I mean, in particular, our next tip at PyEnv, which allows you to have multiple versions of Python because, you know, packages are kind of particular about what version they use. And after I went to update Xcode, it said 20 hours to install. No. Yeah, which I tweeted. It only took, well, I take it back. After two hours, I just closed it and took the uh it's in the show note the dude who sent to me some guy on twitter was like just go to your developer account delete the xcode you have and install the one from uh the just you know remember we used to install applications from like the browser yeah yeah Yeah. that took about five minutes oh interesting okay so i also have upgraded a couple of machines to ventura now and inevitably had to upgrade xcode as well but i've always come at it via the brew route so it's always it's always all command line based for me. And that works pretty good, but it still took about 25, 30 minutes on one of my machines. And it took about 10 minutes on another machine. So I'm not really sure what the difference is. It, it, it's not a good experience. Like I had to do a brew doctor to figure out I could, like certain packages just broke. Uh huh. Brew doctor, for those who don't use homebrew, is actually a command that will tell you like things that homebrew itself thinks are very dumb on your machine. It lost my ZHRC file or overwrote part of it. Oh, no. Which I don't understand how that could happen, but it did. So I had to jump on my GitHub and just like grab my file from literally a week ago, source it, reboot, and then all of a sudden everything works. Hmm. So I'm assuming that it also just like from a non-dev standpoint, it completely blew away all my like notification and audio settings. So before we got on the air, I got blasted with an iMessage in my headphones. I, you usually don't allow iMessage to have audio notifications. Yeah, same. Yeah, I turn off. I turn off the audio notifications on all of my chat apps. Just about everything. Yeah, not a clean upgrade. And honestly, I did it for the show, and I feel very stupid because there's really nothing to report. Yeah, right. Same. Other than a hassle. Yeah, I did it for the show. And thought, well, I want to talk about it on the show because I'm sure there'll be something for us to dig into. And walked away with nothing, which, again, like I've said, is kind of nice when it's your workstation. It, it's, it can be a feat in itself for 
an operating system upgrade to be a rather minor thing. But I overall can't shake this feeling, and I'm not trying to be negative, but I, can, I cannot shake the feeling that about six months or however long I've had the Max, maybe it's, maybe it's been almost a year, I'm not sure when I got the Max, it's at that point that every single Mac gets to. And it reminds me of Windows XP, where when it boots up, I've got about 10 minutes of just waiting for stuff to run, things to pop up, uh, apps to launch and log in, updates to check, things to the, the spotlight service to index, photo analysis D to do its face analysis. And it's all my Macs. And I find that very annoying. And it reminds me, it's like they've recreated that quintessential Windows experience, a different route. They took a different path there, but the end user experience still feels very much the same. And I don't, you know, I don't really know if it's so much Apple's fault, but it doesn't seem like I ever have this problem on Linux. I mean, I'm literally talking to you right now on a Linux install from 2018 and it's still doing fine. Like I don't have these problems. I don't, install as much stuff on them. But I think in part what it is, is each one of these vendors for software has had to come up with their own way to do something. Um, you know, maybe it's they got to run in the foreground in some kind of hacky way where they have to do that, or they need to check for updates and they have to implement their own method to do that. Um, and then you combine that with Apple's own processes and, and services just kind of expanding over the years. So just there's more stuff macOS is doing for you automatically and the tools on macOS like photo analysis D. And the older and slower of a Mac you might have, I think the worse that experience can be or the longer and older an install is. Have you run into this with your Macs? Like all these little apps, especially if you have to use any of the big commercial apps that have like icons up in the menu bar. Oh, you're talking about uh, Adobe, aren't you? Well, that's one of them, but they've all gotten really bad. I'm looking for, there's a, I'm looking for replacements for some of these just because they're just so invasive. Well, I think Mac, a lot like Windows, gets cruddy over time, right? And I'm sure Linux does too. I mean... I've had apt destroy my <laughs> my system more than once. Fair. I have had I have had apt get, you know, kind of garbage on me and I've had this actually one of the machines I'm sitting from is also from 2018. All the three machines in here are. The one in particular I have had to repair from like a single user environment probably three different times. The other two I have not, but this one I had a server that I had to downgrade to Python 3.8. Oh, oh man. No, you don't go back. Apps like, no, there's no going back, my friend. But I did it anyway. <laughs> so then I had to run an apps update and it went bonkers and just deleted the networking thing. I had to call the customer, like, I can't get in anymore. Yeah, man. Oof. With uh, Net NetSuite. It was NetSuite. It just deleted it. It was like, no, nah, auto remove. Bye. Thanks. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I could say nicks and snapshots, but that's just not a good time. That's an app is in production in a lot of places. And a Linux box can go sideways in that regard. But I think if you're just sitting there using it as a desktop, it doesn't tend to just add that cruft. Yeah, if you if you keep a comp, it doesn't. Well, it's also the applications you're using are probably different, right? I mean, I, I truly believe that Creative Cloud is effectively malware at this point. And that's me being a jerk. And Dropbox and, you know, like the list goes on and on. It's just getting worse. And How worse. about the whole Microsoft Office suite for Mac? That crap's doing all kinds of wild in the background all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of that on the Mac now. And these apps in part, They've just gotten big. They've had to add a lot of functionality, as they all do. So, you know, but the upgrade, well, you know, it works, I guess. Everything kept going. I'm just not, I, I don't know. I guess maybe you just reload every year or something like that, and then it's fine. 
you know, we made it work in Windows. Can make it work in other places. It's just a little disappointing to see. Um, and that's kind of what got me on my whole journey of, well, what if, what if I wanted to get out of the ecosystem entirely and just go full Stallman and, you know, Graphene OS on the Pixel, Linux on the desktop and on the laptop. And we'll see, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, so I'm going all in. I'll give it a go for a while. I'm not getting rid of uh, my watch or anything like that. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get a hundred dollars in 60 day credit. And it's a great way to support the show. From development tools to game servers, Linode makes it easy to get started in just a few clicks. They have powerful tools with an API that you can build your own scripts around. And yes, they have a library for Python if you want to build Python scripts around it. And it's just absolutely the best platform to run your applications in the cloud. 11 data centers around the world and 12 more coming online throughout 2023. Linode has so many great features that I have leveraged over the years. They started just to host some applications and some sites. Now we run everything there, anything that's for the team and anything that's for the audience. And we choose from their different data centers, depending on where we think it makes sense. And they have S3 compatible object storage that I have found to be extremely beneficial to use as a backend storage mechanism for things like NextCloud and PeerTube. And honestly, just some of our large media production sharing. And if you need it, they got bare metal systems. And of course, cloud firewalls to make sure that your box is protected so it stops the traffic before it even hits your rig. A powerful DNS manager, infrastructure management tools like Kubernetes are supported, Terraform, Ansible, and super fast networking. 40 gigabit connections coming to the hypervisors, MVME disks available, high-end CPU options available, and of course, just really well-priced right there in the price performance ratio systems if that's what you need as well. You know, on average, their pricing is 30 to 50% cheaper than the other major cloud providers. And if you run into any trouble getting set up, Linode has amazing 24-7 customer support. I've heard raving reports from the audience. Our community loves it, and Linode's community runs deep. They invest in this show, they invest in JB, they invest in community projects, they provide hosting for many critical open-source projects out there and funding for open-source participants to go to events. They're a major player, and they have a great service, and they've been doing it for nearly 19 years and then selling the product on the merits of the product. That's why you got to go check it out for yourself and take advantage of that $100. Linode is dedicated to offering the best in virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it's going to run on Linode. So sign up today at linode.com slash coder. Go get that 100 bucks and support the show. Linode.com slash coder. What do you say we do a little Python loving? We summon the snake. If I could manage the hiss, I would. Yeah, well... I don't know if you could manage the hiss, but you might be able to manage your environment. Oh, crap. He's got jokes. Yeah. So I mentioned before, PyEnv. You need to be using PyEnv because, uh, oh, God, all OSs are super bitchy about different versions of Python. It's uh, basically, if you've ever used, you know, RB, Arbrev. See, the R and the B in English really don't belong together. <laughs> so the Ruby environment tool. It's the same idea. It creates uh, shims to different versions of Python, and you can do pyenv local is the command on the terminal that just sets that directory, that project's local version of Python. It's beautiful. Keeps all your dependencies nice and away from each other where they belong. Similar package for Node is in the document and Ruby. Just all tidy per project. Yeah, I, I actually think for any tool set, you could, should get the equivalent of this. If you're going to have multiple projects and multiple clients... 
you you don't want to do the forced upgrade thing, right? It just it never works out. <laughs> not that you have an experience with that. No, no, of course not, right? Never. The red notification just haunted me. It does. It does actually. So you uh you were watching a little Lex Friedman over the weekend, it a, sounds like. A little. I think I'm a Lex Friedman completist. I got the achievement on Xbox and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. It was over three hours. So he had the former benevolent dictator for life, Guido von Rossum, whose name I probably said wrong, on his uh podcast. But I watched it on YouTube. It's interesting to get people's facial reactions. And I'm going to start with something non-controversial, you know, super chill, right? We all love 7-Up, all of Sprite, we're a cool. Guido uses Copilot. This is the creator of Python. Quote, it, meaning Copilot, is a great assistant. He also goes on to say he uses it every day. I got a clip. I, actually, coding has changed in, in fascinating ways because so much of uh, coding is copying pasting from Stack Overflow and then adjusting which is another way of coding. And I don't want to talk down to that kind of style of coding because it's kind of nicely efficient. But do you know where that is going? A code generation? <laughs> Get, no, seriously, oh. GitHub Copilot. Yeah, Copilot. I use it every day and it- Really? It, yeah, it writes a lot of code for me. And usually it's slightly wrong, but it still saves me typing. Because all I have to do is like change- one word in a line of text that otherwise it it generated perfectly and like how many times are you looking for like oh what was i doing this morning i was looking for a begin marker and i look, was looking for an end marker mm -hmm. and so begin is blah 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 search for begin this is the begin token mm -hmm. and then the next line i type e and it it completes the whole line with end instead of begin. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple example. Sometimes it it sort of, if I name my function right, it writes a five or 10 line function. And you know Python enough to very quickly then detect the issues. So it's, it's, it becomes a really good dance partner it, then. It doesn't save me a lot of thinking, but since I'm a poor typist, I'm very much appreciative of all the all the typing it does for me. <laughs> that reminds me of your commentary on Copilot. Exactly, right? It, it's, I mean, I think uh, the, I, well, let's call him King Snake has it right. And uh, so, so now we can stop saying mean things on Twitter about Copilot, right? And he kind of goes in there and talks a little bit about how he sort of coaches it. He makes a few things that are like real clear and obvious. So it catches on to what he's looking for from it quickly. So he's kind of, he's learning how to coach Copilot to produce the results he wants, which seems like an obvious way to go. Yeah, it, it's, it seems like the exact right approach. I, I, you know, comparing it to Stack Overflow, super, super right. I didn't really think of that so hard myself, but that is exactly what it is. Yeah, it's just the new version of it, I suppose. I grabbed a couple other clips that you have listed in here just because I thought it was interesting to hear it in his own words. And it's a three hour, like three hour and 15 minute interview or something like that. So I think what you've net, what you honed in on here are truly the best three moments in the three hours. All right. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So for folks who don't do a lot of Python, it basically turns out that as projects get bigger, maybe this is my thing, but you end up wanting some form of stronger typing. Right. He goes into great detail about how there are multiple proposals on how to do it. 
they ended up with this kind of type hinting system. And the reason they're not quote unquote enforced, because they're not enforced, right? They're, you know, it, Python, like most interpreted language, will try to, it's, it's do what I mean, not what I say, right? So it'll, if you throw it the string one, it will try to interpret that as one, things like that. Apparently that would break Python if they try to enforce it now. And I think the key he, he says, and I don't know if Chris clipped this, is that a lot of programs are using that ability of kind of do what I mean, not what I say. And it would just massively break those programs, which makes a lot of sense, right? It's uh, think about if, I, I guess for maybe a more general analogy, if you're moving from JavaScript to TypeScript and you have a linter that is strongly enforcing type checking, you're probably going to have a bad time. You're going to need to do a lot of work for that. <laughs> so the type hints is an optional mechanism that people can use, and it's especially popular with sort of larger companies that have very large code bases written in Python. Do you think of it as almost like documentation, saying these two variables are this type? more than documentation. I mean, so it it, it is a sub-language of Python where where you can express the types of variables. So here's a variable and it's an integer. And here's an argument to this function and it's a string. And here is a function that returns a list of strings. But that's not checked when you run the code. But exactly. There, there is a separate piece of software called a static type checker that reads all your source code without executing it and thinks long and hard about what... It looks from just reading the code that code might be doing and double checks if that makes sense if you take the types as annotated into account. So this is something you're supposed to run as you develop. It's like a linter. Yeah, linter. It, that's definitely a development tool. There you go. I think that that, that grabbed the, uh, the essence of it. And, um, you know, we, what he said in there that rang a bell for me was, look, this is just how a lot of companies started using it. And now there's just a lot of user adoption there. Sometimes that's just how things get set, eh? Well, you know, when, once you have a big user base, and uh, in particular a big developer base, it it's real hard <laughs> to make sweeping changes, right? Um, yeah. I didn't clip it because I didn't think it was super interesting, but Lex pushes him on like a Python 4.0, which again, if you haven't been in the Python world, and I wasn't even there for this transition, so because Wes corrupted me into Python. Uh, Python 2 to 3 is, in fact, a very breaking change and are effectively different languages. Right, still wounds from that one. There are still places running Python 2 code and are going to continue doing that. Uh, so, yeah, it's... it's. Uh, I, I, think he, I think he's right that Python at this point is a mature language, and I, I would almost go as far to say as it would be a big misplay to go to a 4.0. Particularly because of its dominance in uh, data sciences and machine learning, those are very practical fields that are uh, certainly developers are important, but they're not. You know, the developers are part of the process; they are not the end of the process, right? So, I don't think those folks would want to have a big transition. I certainly wouldn't, and I'm not even. I'm doing mostly, you know, IoT and web applications these days. I guess I should call them services if I want to be cool, huh? <laughs> you know what is cool? Tailscale. Tailscale.com slash coder. That's where you go 
for a free account for up to 20 devices, and it's a great way to support the show. Simply put, Tailscale is a zero-config VPN. You can just get it up and running in minutes. It'll take care of the firewall rules and the routing for you, and that will directly connect each of your machines together in a mesh network protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. It builds a mesh VPN with the best VPN tech in the business. You quickly and easily create a secure network between all your devices, your cloud servers, if you like, your VMs, your tablet. I mean, really all of it. I had a bit of a mini breakthrough this weekend. Uh, It was a little bit earlier this weekend, but I was really testing it this weekend on the road where I realized I could deploy NextCloud and via the config, just make it available exclusively to my TailScale network. All my important systems are on TailScale and my phones are on TailScale. So why not? It was like this moment of, well, this will really take things up to the next level. I, you can't even, the land that the box is on, you can't even get to. And I love that because sometimes I have guests over. It's all just exclusively on my TailScale network where my IPs remain the same and static. They have brilliant controls with ACL. They're testing out this new feature called Funnel where you could actually even funnel in outside connections if you want to. And they have all kinds of great backend services like TailScale Send, which is kind of like AirDrop for all your devices and all the OSs on your TailScale network. They now have TailScale SSH, which allows you to establish an SSH connection between your devices in the TailScale network, all authorized by the TailScale access controls. And you don't have to manage SSH keys like it does all of it for you. It's so slick. And you can try it for free up to 20 devices. That's it. It's not like a limited time thing. You can just use it. They're not routing your traffic. It's all direct. It's all machine to machine. So they have like this backend fabric infrastructure for authorizing and managing the keys and just making that user experience really great and establishing those initial connections. But in overall traffic, it's not a huge burden for them. So you can try it on 20 machines and, you know, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of devices. They have plans if you want to go beyond that. And that's how they make money. But because your traffic is going from device A to device B directly, you know, they're not, they don't have to run a huge infrastructure to make all of this happen. It's a really great service. They have blog posts that talk about how they've built it to be sustainable for the long term and how they can offer up to 20 devices for free. And you can see there's a lot of long-term smart thinking at TailScale. I love it. It's going to change your game. So go try it for free and support the show. Tailscale.com slash coder. I think my favorite moment in the interview was, I think maybe it was towards the end. I'm not sure. No, no, it was early, I think. They got into fads and coding. I thought this was uh, a moment that reminded me of some of the things we've talked about on this show and some of the trends that we've followed on this show. And I thought this was a good moment. So, And this is one of the uh, shorter clips. And it starts where Lex is talking about how he'd gotten into Flash and developed a lot of animations in Flash. And then one day, oh, look, Flash is going away. Many of the concepts that the technology introduced or made accessible first are preserved, of course. Because, yeah, we're not using Java applets anymore, but the notion of reactive web pages that sort of contain little bits of code that respond directly to something you do, like pressing a button or a link or hovering even... Mm -hmm. Uh, is has certainly not gone away. And that those animations that were made painfully 
complicated with Flash. I mean, Flash was an innovation when it first came up. And when it was replaced by JavaScript equivalent stuff, it was a somewhat better way to do animations, but those animations are still there. Not all of them, but but sort of, again, there is an evolution and often, so often with technology that the sort of the technology that was eventually thrown away or replaced was still essential to to sort of get started. There wouldn't be jet planes without propeller planes. I think the tricky thing is, is what do you know as a fad at the time, both as a user in what you adopt and, a, and as a developer in what you focus on? And that, I think, has been one of the things we focused on this show is you can only spend so much time following these things. So which ones are the ones you invest in? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the show, we have spent over a decade and we're still talking about JavaScript and TypeScript. <laughs> right, less so, but it's... Uh, <laughs> A lot less Objective-C. We're certainly not mentioning storyboards or nibs anymore, right? Mm. I think this is a well-made point. And I'm just going to take a little bit of a shot at the crab people. Hear a lot of talk about Rust. See a lot of code written in Python. True. I'll take that other end, though. I think uh, you're still seeing momentum build for Rust everywhere. You know, it's uh, inclusion now in the Linux kernel. And... uh, those are some pretty hardcore C guys that are letting rust into their kernel. And that's happening at a pretty good pace. And I think once that happens, you'll start seeing more and more drivers written in rust. And so you'll start seeing more and more low-level rust. So I don't know. It's a slow burn. If I were going to bet on it, maybe. But let me ask you this before you go any further. You know, one of the things that he says in there is that uh, the technology itself, like Flash, it it goes away. But the ideas sort of live on. If we were to look at Windows on ARM, the first go they had with the Metro UI and that whole paradigm they went for during the Windows 8 era where they had a UI for the desktop, the tablet, and the phone. It all had that Metro flat style. When we look back at that, what do you feel like lived on from that? Because that was a pretty rough experiment for you personally and for Microsoft a pretty large tech company who was really just having flop after flop back then, right? They're just not the same company anymore. What do you think lived on? What ideas? Because that technology didn't really get traction. Well, I mean, there's the big obvious thing, especially if you're in the Microsoft world, the MVVM pattern, right? A lot of uh, things are using that. You could argue that, that let's call it Metro when, uh, when AUI was... Uh, really the precursor to that, to all of that, right? It, I mean, sure, replace XAML and put in HTML, and you've got proto, proto-react proto in a lot of ways, the idea that you would have model view model instead of model view controller. I personally don't like that pattern because <laughs> I think it's dumb. I'd say even at a higher level, just the flat trend in design came out of there. Yeah, I mean, from a, yeah, I, I was thinking more on a code level. Yeah, no, it's certainly the trend in design, the idea. I mean, if we want to talk about the devices themselves, I would argue that the Windows 8 tablets were still more versatile than iPads are today. A lot of that's because stage managers are just fundamentally broken. Um, but most of it's because Apple like kind of hobbles the iPad for reasons I don't understand. 
I, you know, I don't think it lost because it was bad, I guess is where I'm trying to go with this. I think it lost because it was late. They were too late. iOS existed and Microsoft, uh, they just, you know, they they had at the time, it was such a different time, right? They were so worried about offending their partners. Remember mm-hmm. how careful they were with the surfaces and how they were slightly underpowered and slightly overpriced. And that was very intentional. They didn't make their own phone. They got HTC to do it or Motorola. I had the purple HTC phone at the time. It was, you know, they're actually, it's a, it, goes right back to the old thing about a Python 4.0. When you're big and you have relationships and customers and partners, it's real hard to do crazy stuff. Apple, um, I would say that being Apple's partner is like an abusive relationship. <laughs> I mean, they went with singular, not AT&T, singular to do the iPhone because they could throw their weight around and just push poor old dying singular around. And by the way, singular died, right? AT&T bought singular, they merged or whatever. That's just not something that microsoft honestly could have done right they would have gotten too much scrutiny are we getting to the point now in late 2022 where we can look back at what happened when apple launched the app store is that a fad like i don't think we're gonna have any more app store kings right you can think of individual individuals who made it rich with an app or two that they put in the app store and they went big because they nailed it at the right time and they had the right social reach. And I don't see, I don't see any more individuals like that emerging. It seems like those Kings were crowned and I'm looking back at that as kind of a, as a gold rush or a fad, if you will. What do you think? I I think it's over, right? It's, um, I mean, I'm not saying they'll disappear overnight, but we're not going to have another platform like the iOS app store. It's not going to be Facebook Meta or Horizon or whatever they're calling it. It's, uh, I don't know what it's going to be. It's also not going to be the dream of the 90s where everybody has their own, you know, server and, you know, the wild, wild west of the internet, right? It's, it's hard to see anything emerging that's big that doesn't come from one of the five big tech companies at this moment, and particularly Apple or Google or Facebook. It's hard to picture anything that could emerge without them. It's not going to be Apple. Right. You, you can't Apple out. Does that include an AR, VR headset? Yeah, that's not going to work. Because that's just an extension of the existing ecosystem. Right. It, it, all of Apple's stuff is effectively, I would even call it baby Mac OS, because even iOS is baby Mac OS, right? They won the last generation. And I know the Android people are going to write in, there's more Android phones in the world. It doesn't matter. People with money who spend money on software spend it on iOS. Apple just won. So like every, any, I won't say monopolist, because I know there's an argument they're not. But any dominant player, they're just all they have to do is drown the babies in the bathtub, which is what they're doing, right? It's interesting how they say they care about your privacy, and then six months later they introduce their own ad tracking stuff after they've butchered Facebook. And do tap streaming for every single thing you do in the app store and whatnot. Yeah. This is again my this was my red flag, and I thought, all right, you know, between that that New York Times piece about the dad who got you know, screwed by Google and Apple turning up the ad collection and services needs just, you know, it seems, it seems like a really kind of uncertain future. Like, you know, if, if there was a, if there, if you were trying to see what the next tech cycle is, what the next thing to hedge your bets on, it almost feels like it'd be something outside one of these. 
it's it's not going to be i don't think it's going to be tech the way we have been talking about tech for the last decade it's not going to be silicon valley apps it's going to be if anything and i i well think it could be nothing right but it's going to be something more like real hard technology uh you know things that require basically darpa right where we're talking basic sciences here not not you know i'm gonna let young people who don't want to do their laundry have someone who doesn't have a job come and pick up their laundry right no you mean something that like is decentralized around the world and converts hard energy into hard digital assets that are scarce and verifiable and trackable i i I don't i mean i don't like that yeah that's (laughs) no actually i for better or worse and I wonder if mostly worse for most people, you got to figure the big boom in technology in the next decade is going to be digital currencies, but mostly CBDCs, government digital currencies, not not crypto like we've seen in the casinos, but more like crypto that the government moves their societies over to. The, the obvious thing you're going to see, and I don't even know if I'd call it a, a new technology, is just it's going to make uh, uh, Edward Snowden's spying generation look like nothing. Right. Total surveillance. Um, and look no further than our friends at the Internal Revenue Service yeah. who have, are openly contracting with InfoSec companies to, quote, acquire Facebook information on people to see if they are tax cheats. The only way this could be prevented is if people had viscerally reacted negatively to the data tracking of Meta and and Google and Amazon no, and Apple. Yeah, but but Google Docs is free, man. Come on. Mm-hmm. Do you want to like pay for Word? Remember, remember years ago, I used to rant about this, that you should just pay the dev his 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 50 bucks. And well, that fight's been well over. It's it's all just data now. Free, free software for data. I mean, I know I I'm, I try not to be so pessimistic, but so far, the lesson that I've learned in life is that if the technology can be used that way, they're going to try and really not to make it about this. But personally, this is why I am long-term bullish on Bitcoin, because it is a independent, outside-the-system, peer-to-peer network that is going to be competitive with the CBDCs. It may work in conjunction with it, but it's going to be one that's run by people. It's going to be the open source. It is the open source version of money. And the CBDC is going to be the commercial Microsoft and Apple of money and Google of money. And, uh, you know, my personality traits, what they are, I'm going to bet long-term you know, and I'm talking long, long term, like a decade. I'm not talking about like the next couple of years. I'm talking like a decade. I'm going to bet that because of the downsides of the CBDCs, there will inherently be ongoing customer demand for Bitcoin. And because there's only 21 million, there ever can only be 21 million. That just means number go up eventually. And people will need a scarce, hard asset that's digital because all, all of our assets will be digital, at least in terms of dollar amount. Well, if that happens then ownership of a decentralized currency, which is effectively what you're talking about, right, will be another large indicator in the ML algorithm that governments around the world use to uh, put to, to you, you know how you have a FICO like you know what, China China is actually the best example of this I'm going to be a risk because of my you know Bitcoin wallet balance or something yeah <laughs> you're a risk because why does he need to have currency i'm not joking right it's like if i went on facebook to, if i somehow bought a lamborghini and went on facebook and took pictures of lamborghini i'd probably get audited 
right? If they were analyzing podcasts, which I probably get audited because I'm so like anti, you know, tracking for this purpose. Yeah, we got to come up with code words. We better figure that out. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, the problem is if you still believe in the Fourth Amendment, you're old like us. Yeah. Like, I, you know, to me, it's like it doesn't matter if you're guilty or innocent. The government has to prove it. Right. Even to investigate. My math is, is that probably by 2024, maybe early 2025, we're going to have regulation on the books that makes it legal to own Bitcoin and trade in Bitcoin simply because to tax it. The big. Yes, exactly. The big banks, they want in on the action like BlackRock. They they specifically want in on the action. And the IRS wants those capital gains tax. The IRS in 2014 already made it clear. This is property. Go for it. We're just going to tax you for capital gains. They love the capital gains tax. And this is going to be one as the price go up that make them a lot of money. So I think between Wall Street and the IRS wanting a bit of that uh, capital gains tax, I actually think there's an incentive for Bitcoin to be regulated and legitimized. I don't know about any of the others. I think probably not for any of the others. Oh, I'm not saying it'll be illegal. I'm just saying it's not going to be the safe, private. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Panacea it, it is, that, that, yeah. Because your point's well taken. It is a public blockchain. Yes. A, a, a young man in the Bahamas who apparently the attorney general came out <laughs> with some melee. I, that's, I don't even want to touch that again, but it, it, it's that they're not going to let you do this. You can't have money that governments can't tax. Just like in China, if you don't tip your waitress, your social credit score goes down. Almost like if you say something bad on Twitter, people don't hire you for jobs or something, right? There's just a couple of things you're not supposed to mess with. You're not supposed to mess with the energy supply. You're not supposed to mess with the tax revenue. <laughs> no, but the list of things you're not supposed to mess with is actually getting bigger. I yeah, well, yeah. There's government sanction and social sanction, right? So It's a good time. And um, I really couldn't tell you which cycle I'd bet on. I mean, in terms of programming language, actually, I think, you know, the, the current contenders are have a long run. And I think Rust is one of them. You know, like if if my kids wanted to learn a programming language, I'd probably tell them to go learn Rust. You know, if uh, if they came to me and said, Dad, I'm excited about Go, I'd say, OK, go for it. I see what you did there. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the current crop of contenders is going to be in place for probably 20 years. Yeah. I mean, Python, Rust, all safe bets. JavaScript is going to piss on all our graves. <laughs> yep. Yep. It will outlive all of us. With a new framework every week. That That is the only <laughs> thing I believe in. Is that there's, since we've been on the air for the last 50 minutes, there are five new JavaScript frameworks. <laughs> One every 10 minutes. Ask not what your podcast can boost for you, but what you can boost for your podcast. All right. Well, uh, Dahaj boosted in with 4747 47 sats. Coming in hot with the boost. <laughs> I just got to say, even if it's depressing, I'm loving the economy coverage. It might not be everyone's favorite, but it's very appreciated. You guys pick up on it sooner than most other sources, and it has been very helpful. That's because we get hit first. I am. That is true. Yes, we are on the small business front line. Um, I'm really glad to hear it's been helpful. I hope others feel that way. I'd be curious to know Mike and I, you know, we've always debated that kind of stuff since the, you know, very beginning of the show, how much, how much to go in and, you know, and so hopefully, you know, we we eventually find a balance. Soham boosted in with a handsome, nice looking row of ducks right there. Look at that. He writes, the key to understanding the tech news is that the media is not, quote, free, despite what the 1A says. Big money interest almost always control the narrative. 
All outlets are owned by and operated by the benefit of billionaires. He continues with a row of sticks. Wouldn't you consider SBF buying articles as clear examples of propaganda? In fact, nothing that actually harms big money will ever find a spot in the limelight, regardless of its impact on the life of you and me. When money buys the headlines, its press isn't free. It's quite literally paid for. That hits, I have to say, because on Monday morning as we record, Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of FTX, is currently scheduled to attend a talk held by the New York Times that's also co-hosted by President Zelensky of Ukraine, by the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, by Mark Zuckerberg, by bankers. I mean, you've probably seen this going around on Twitter. It's, it's, a, it's a mucky muck list. And uh, SBF is on it, and he's still scheduled to present at this thing. This, and, and by the way, Mike, the tickets are $2,400. Yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> and honestly, if there wasn't a war in Ukraine, Zelensky wouldn't be there. He's the, he's the odd man out in a lot of ways. Yeah, my sense is they're probably going to remote in. It hasn't been said. Yeah, well, how, I mean, if I, how is he going to get on a plane? And I, I mean, there's some practical problems for him, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think this dude is right. I will argue I'm more and more seeing that there's also social capital, which is a fuzzy idea I'm coming up with, not the traditional version. That seems to be super important. And I'll take the case of Elon Musk. He's literally the richest man in the world other than Putin. And he is rapidly because he lost too much social capital. He may well jeopardize his financial capital or at least a good chunk of it. Right. And essentially what we saw with SBF is he was buying that social capital. He, he was using financial capital to buy social capital, which then became a cycle to generate financial capital. He would have been fine had he not insanely gambled that money, right? That's kind of the, like, he just got a little too greedy. Yeah, that is, I think, a thought very much worth exploring. And I'd love to hear others' thoughts on it, too. The Golden Dragon comes in with a row of ducks. Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. So much show last week with Nick's having a GUI installer. I'm going to definitely have to spin it up on some spare hardware soon. Also, in regards to the FTX story, I honestly don't understand why anybody thought custody of Bitcoin that was not your own was anything other than bad eventually. Yeah, it's different, right? There's if you mm. give them your coins, there's no there's no FDIC, right? They literally now hold the keys to that entry and they they don't they don't have to give it back to you. I mean, that's really it. Also, he sent in a couple of baby ducks just to say that his first boost of the week went to Coder 493. That's nice. You know, it's like his first cup of the co coffee. That's great. The first best part of waking up <laughs> is sending us some sats. <laughs> Coming in hot with the boost. Purple Dog sends 3,000 sats. We're a .NET shop and already upgrading to .NET 7. Hell yeah. There's hardly ever breaking changes. Uh, LTS or not, it makes no difference. You've got to install the patches either way. If you're not planning to patch, then sticking to an LTS doesn't really help you. Might as well take advantage of new features and increased performance. All of that is accurate. Way to go, Purple Dog. That is, that's a, you know what though? Re impressive. You don't, you don't see it all the time. You don't, and people just openly admitting they're a .NET shop. Also, uh, mucho pride. There's no other .NET shops out there. I wonder. They don't exist. I wonder. You know, if anybody, we always like to get a rundown of like a Dark Matter devs kind of day to day. That'd make for a great little boost. Just assume he's Dark Matter. .NET, Dark Matter, done. Put him in the basement. Well, like, you know, maybe you're not. 
Tell me otherwise. He's building the Windows ecosystem that we're all going to be downloading on our Windows 15 tablets. Hey, man, sometimes I find out like some game I've loved for like 10 years has a .NET back end. I'm like, well, OK. When you go to install, it's like <laughs> installing .NET 3.5. Yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So I'll boost in with the Rove Ducks. Thank you kindly. And it's uh, their very first boost. And we also got uh, 3000 sats from uh, Hanigan, who just said uh, thanks for the show. Thank you for the boost, everybody. If you'd like to support the show via boost and just say thanks for the episode, go grab a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. There's other options there, too. And you can do it from your browser with a tool called Albi. And then you can just uh, send a boost from our website at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We have the new Coderly out uh, for our members at coderqa.co and for the Jupiter Party members. I've been getting compliments on it. I think the mascot was happy. I assume you probably saw that Twitter thread. I did, I did. I think he's happy. I, I think so. And I think if you manage to make the mascot happy with a Coderly, I think that's a bar that I'm, ex- I'm happy living with. That's, that's something, you know? If the mascot liked it, then other people will probably love it. Um, but so the Coderly is a perk you get as a member. You also get an ad-free version of the show, coderqa.co for that. Um, and you can sign up for all the shows at jupiter.party. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you'd like to send the good people this week? I don't even know anymore. It's not the Fediverse, I'll tell you that. I know. Uh, I'm, uh, you know what? Matrix. You, Matrix. you know, you are, the Matrix. you are on the Fediverse. You're just on the Matrix Fediverse. I think that's still technically I know. I'm, I'm jacked in. I'm, I'm a blue pill now. That's yeah, it. so jacked you in. can go find Mike uh, at uh, coder.show slash Matrix. That'll take you there. That's where we're both at. And then also, you can participate in our chat room when we're live. I let the chat room know in there when the show's going live on Mondays. So you can find out. But we're just hanging out there throughout the week. Coder.show slash Matrix. Why not become part of the Matrix Fediverse? It's the in thing to do right now. Right? Links to what we talked about today at Coder.show slash 494. You can find also our subscribes over there, the contact page. We love your emails. It's a big part of the show. Love chewing on your feedback. It's a good way to warm up. So send it at Coder.show slash contact. And of course, we've got a bunch of great shows over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. I went in deep on my switch to Graphene OS, my Pixel 7 Pro, and how I'm using Nextcloud to sync it all on Linux Unplugged. You can find that at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coder Radio Program. I'll see you right back here next week.